Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one first degree murder guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have been Good evening. This is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. This is Episode 6, Women in Horse Racing. We're joined by Natalie Voss Nevels, three-time Eclipse Award-winning writer with the Pollock Report, human trainee of Jitterbug, and wife of a favorite horse racing guest, Joe Nevels. Natalie earned a bachelor's degree in equine science from the University of Kentucky and has written features, investigative articles, and profiles during her writing career, with her byline appearing in the Pollock Report, Business Lexington Magazine, Chevy Chaser, South Cider, Chronicle of the Horse, The Horse Magazine, The Blood Horse, Quarter Horse International, I mean, Quarter Horse News, American Racehorse, Acreage Life, Bird Talk, and Equine International, among others. We'll talk with Natalie about horse racing topics, thoroughbred aftercare, and her Eclipse Award-winning work. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening. And, Michael, real quick program note on tomorrow's roundtable. Take it away. (laughs) Okay. Well, I just want to invite everybody to join us tomorrow. Uh, We will address the uh, Derek Chauvin trial and everything that happened in our special bonus episode of Clear and Convincing tomorrow night, it'll be a roundtable discussion, kind of a mismatch of the American Idiot Show panel and uh, Clear and Convincing. That'll be tomorrow at 8.30 on Facebook Live and uh, YouTube. Great. All right. And on with tonight's episode. Uh, of course, we're joined by Natalie uh, Voss Nevels, um, and she is a great, phenomenal writer. Whether you follow horses or not, check out her work at Pollock Report, 
Um, Natalie, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself beyond the mangled introduction that I gave you <laughs> in the opener? <laughs> well, thanks. Um, I, I usually get asked sort of how I came to do this job, and um, that's probably the, the best way I could I, I could sort of introduce myself as I um, I've been obsessed with horses since I was uh, like six or seven I think pretty much as long as I can really remember um, and my mom sort of stuck me in front of the tv to watch the Kentucky Derby because she was like look horses she'll be quiet for a while I'll let her watch the horses um, and then I just became obsessed with racing because that was my access to horses for a while um, I did grow up riding but I really was just in love with the thoroughbred and and the way that I accessed information about racing was by reading, you know, the trade publications. And I had always had a a propensity for writing. So I thought like, you know, I should go to school in Kentucky where all the thoroughbreds are and, uh, you know, study horses. And then hopefully somebody will just trust me that I'm a decent writer and let me just write about them. And that in hindsight was not the best strategy in the world, (laughs) but it did work out for me. And I'm very, grateful that that's the case yes and and you are a very talented writer i think you could you could cover any topic any genre that you put your mind to even novels and uh and that kind of stuff so maybe jitterbug needs to become a novelist uh, Jitterbug would love that. Jitterbug is is annoyed that I have less time these days to write her columns. She would prefer if I just quit my job and wrote her book that she's been talking about for several years now. So we'll see. How did I peg that one? <laughs> I don't know. So um, first, since we're we're talking about women in horse racing, and you know, one of the things I've I've talked to other horse racing guests. Uh, I am a child of the 70s and early 80s. And when I was growing up, when it came to horse racing, everybody looked like Oscar Madison. <laughs> yeah. And not yeah. Matthew Perry, Oscar Madison, but <laughs> Jack Klugman, Walter Matthau. <laughs> so that's something as a, a teenager, even, I would, I thought, well, I could never do that because I'm not right for the role, but that has changed so much in the last, I want to say about 15 years. Mm-hmm. You see more and more women and in our authoritative roles, track executives, owners, of course, Penny Chenry and uh, Mrs. Whitney blazed the trail in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we see more owners, more trainers, more jockeys, grooms, um, and now experts and commentators like Acacia Courtney, yourself, uh, Nicole Russo. Mm-hmm. She may be with a competing publication. Yeah, she's with um, the Daily so really the, she's, she's great. Yes. <laughs> and sometimes I want to call you Nicole. Oh, everyone I've does I've searched that. for Nicole Ball. People get us confused all the time. It's We are really, really close friends. We also board our horses together. And so, like, in fairness, people see us together all the time. So it's pretty understandable, but it's kind of funny to okay. us. People routinely call us each other's names. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, good. I'm not the only one. <laughs> Although no. there are a lot of Natalie Vosses out there as well. 
oh, who knew? I, I'm, I'm used to it being an unusual an unusual name. Although I think, you know, it was actually the name of a character in some Charlie Sheen movie, like in the 80s, apparently, because when I have searched myself, I usually get all the stuff about, I think it was Charlie Sheen. And it's just like, oh, wow, yes. that's interesting. <laughs> uh, that that did come up. But a couple of other, there there are some other Natalie bosses around. Oh, um, well, good. So <laughs> maybe your evil twins. No, oh, um, not so good then. <laughs> no, they're the evil ones. You're the good ones. Oh, one. well, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that's, uh, you know, what what are your thoughts on that? It, it's more and more. Is it enough? Are we? Have we shattered the glass ceiling? Um, I mean, it's definitely a lot better than it was um i i will say i think there's still something of a glass ceiling um for women in certain types of roles um like there there are female trainers but i can't think of very many that have really big barns that have really high level horses there's a few but um it's not really that many um when you get to sort of into like the, the C-suite roles in at the racetrack organizations and the, and the betting companies, it's get you, the higher up you get on the food chain, the more it starts, starts trending towards uh, white guys. And that's, that's okay. still an issue. So I, I think that it's kind of, I think that we're doing um, better for representation, but I think we sort of top out sort of more in the middle of the, the realm of things in, in certain types of roles in the industry. And that's, that's still kind of an issue. Right. And, uh, you know, this idea kind of came to me when I started watching Fox sports and, uh, Acacia Courtney and Maggie Wolfendale were kind of the authorities mm-hmm. as far as horses. Um, and the, the guys were all just the commentators and, you know, calling the the balls and the strikes as they saw them, but it was Acacia and Maggie that were doing the handicapping and the, you know, condi- how the condition of the horses in the paddock and how they were behaving and their historical records and things like that, which really, like I said, impressed me because I was used to that being, you know, exclusively men. Even mm-hmm. my own family, you know, with... uh horse racing and horses uh, when I was a kid. So, right. And to see yeah, that's been... what Jonathan Kinchin won a contest and he was in the paddock filling in and he was like, I can tell you they have two ears, two eyes, four <laughs> legs and a tail and that's it. <laughs> Don't expect more from me. <laughs> so, Yeah, that's been an interesting sort of evolution just um, you know, Maggie's been been doing the paddock commentary for several years now. Acacia's been around for several years, but I feel like, um, especially with Acacia, they've sort of uh, shifted her somewhat more towards, uh, you know, also constructing a ticket and, you know, really taking the the more serious handicappers' perspective um, rather than just kind of translating the the paddock appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a few. Um, you know, younger women on the uh, the TVG and and the, the Fox 
News and at some of the racetracks too are kind of in that role now where they are talking more directly to the serious horse player. And I don't think that was happening. I don't think that was happening much when I got into the business and I haven't comparatively mm-hmm. been here that long. Um, and that's encouraging because, I mean, for a while when you looked at the national broadcast um, of the Derby and the, the Breeders' Cup, you had Charles Buchanan, um on the pony commentating on horses' behavior, and you have, you have Donna Barton Brothers who does that now for NBC. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it seems to be kind of like you would have a woman in an expert role, but it was usually based on like, so you ride horses. What do you see from a rider's perspective, which is awesome, but not also including like girls can handicap too, <laughs> you know, and having the numbers, the, the analytics and that kind of stuff is something that, that uh, women enjoy also. Right. And as I understand it, Acacia is actually quite good. She is. Yeah. She's, um, she, pretty much all of them are better than me. <laughs> like, male, female, whatever. They're all better at doing the, the serious horse player stuff than I am. But yeah, she, she really is very good. And Gabby my, Gaudet is my, awesome too. My system is I like the sire. I like the dam. I like the color. I like the name. I like the trainer. None of which <laughs> has well any, any impact on how close the horse might be to the front. <laughs> when I, the race I find is over. The, I mean it's it's not the worst strategy. I find the more thought I put into it, the more I, I talk myself out of what in, would have what would have ended up being a really good pick or ticket. So <laughs> the rare occasion I try to do it, I just kind of like, okay, we're gonna spend five minutes looking at this and then we're done because I'm just gonna make myself lose. <laughs> right. Exactly. So um but yeah, it, it's great that to see, but there is room for, there's always room for improvement. So um, I think track, because we have Belinda Stronach, mm-hmm. and she's about it. Well, we just had, Keeneland just had their, named their first female president in Shannon Bishop Arvin, um, which was oh, quite okay. exciting. And we have, um, I think, I know that we have one vice president of racing who's female, uh, Jill Byrne at Colonial Downs. And I know that um, Jennifer Hoyt just got promoted at Oaklawn, and I don't remember if she's director of racing or VP of racing, but that, that was a, a, not a role either way. It's, it's not a role that you see a ton of women in. So there's been some, some recent movement on that. But for me, it's also kind of like, you know, I, I saw a, a satire headline not too long ago that was like, you know, historic milestones that you thought had already happened. <laughs> and so every time there's like, you know, the first woman and first woman in whatever role, it's like, man, it's, it's 2021. That's that we really didn't have anybody else before. This. <laughs> it's, it's good to have gotten there, but you sometimes have a moment of, wow, really? But okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it also, to, to some degree, it may also be that there aren't, as many women, especially my age, who were just, well, this isn't, this is a man's world. And they are not mm-hmm. even in the realm of uh, working for the track or, or working as executives with tracks or, or doing those things. So it's the younger generation that are going to storm the gates and 
you know, go into those positions and go into those uh, those roles. Right, but I do think it's important that you know the that the um, the need for diversity and inclusion sort of be oh, yeah. in the the forefront of the minds of those gatekeepers because if you look at you know some of the boards of the major organizations in racing like the Breeders' Cup, the um, the NTRA, the Jockey Club stewards, that sort of thing, if they can appoint somebody they think is qualified, they are appointing more young men than they used to. And there's usually kind of the, the one or two women, and it's usually the same women who are very well qualified. Um, but you have to think like, okay, well, so if they're sort of allowing the next generation of guys in who are usually people who have family in the business, um, it's, it's time to let the, the next generation of women in too. And I'm not seeing that happen quite as evenly as it's happening for the guys at this point. Okay. That's a good point. So, but, you know, it also uh, might be as much a, an establishment thing, too. I think that, like, so many of the uh, the stakeholders and sort of the controllers, I guess, of, of racing through the years, it's very much a, a family thing. You know, people who are in the business are related to somebody else in the business if they have you know, a, a name, mm-hmm. then, then that really carries a lot of weight. And I think that, like, it, this might just sort of be my personal frame of reference because I don't have family in the business, but a lot of my sort of cohorts who also came to the sport and are about my age, a lot of them didn't have family in the business. And so you, you do sort of wonder, like, okay, how much of this is based on gender, how much of this is based on, well, you're, there, there's another person from the old guard who's sort of ahead of you. How much of it is age? It's just sort of hard to tell, but there's definitely kind of that happening too, is like you're not exactly one of us. Um, and I think that that sometimes influences decisions, quite honestly. Right. That, so, yeah, if you're, if you're related it gives you a foot in the door. Whereas on yeah, your own, it's, it's a lot more difficult. Yeah. And if there's somebody who's, you know, related to somebody who's kind of in line ahead of you for something, like they're going to stay ahead of you kind of regardless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nepotism at work everywhere. <laughs> it's, to a degree. It's true, which is which isn't to say that people with family in the business do not work very hard because they do, but like that is one of the things that makes it harder to break in for sure. Mm-hmm. All right. So we have uh, any thoughts on, on changing that or plugging at it? You know, I think it sort of falls somewhat to the, the people who make, hiring decisions, whether it's owners, contracting trainers, or um, the people who make decisions about track executive positions or, or, you know, exercise riders who want to be groom or who, sorry, who want to be jockeys, sort of choosing to think about, let's make sure I'm doing this thoughtfully and keeping diversity in mind um, because Mm -hmm. you can show up and, and, and work very hard and you can build your qualifications as best you can. But if that gate isn't open, isn't ultimately 
opens to you by the gatekeeper because they're not thinking about it, um, then at some point you're going to sort of you're going to sort of hit a wall, I guess. So I, I think right. that it, it takes mindfulness from the people who have maybe not been used to thinking about that kind of thing before. Um, people who've been in the business much longer and who haven't had to confront these questions before, I think, need to be more aware of it. And I think that's where you're really going to see movement. Okay. All right. Well, that is, and you know, maybe in you know a year down the road, two years down the road, let's get together and we'll we'll see what's changed and Absolutely. how there you know, how things have changed. And um, and then I'll keep off because I know you've appeared on other panels and things uh, on this similar same topic. Um, and you know I'll keep an eye out to see follow those uh, those programs. Absolutely. So, yeah. Because your website is really great, and we'll oh, I've got a link you. to it on the on the blog talk page, and um, awesome. I will try to post a link to it on fa- I'll post a link to it on our Facebook page as well. Oh, perfect! That would be great. So, because yeah, that has a lot of links to your articles and uh, a bio about you and and the the different media and things that you've appeared on because you've done podcasts and in addition to all your articles, uh, which we're going to talk about now. So, um, now something I don't know the listeners how familiar they are with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Natalie Wright. A, a column, or rather, her draft cross mare writes a column <laughs> in Chronicle of the Horse, um, and I still say they need to do a behind the stall door with her. I know. I don't understand how this doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> I will get on. I mean, usually that's, the woman that does. Usually those they tonight. reserve that. <laughs> usually they reserve that for you know Grand Prix jumpers or something like that. Horses who have. Serious athletic accomplishments, but we're just sort of well, plugging along. I also suggested <laughs> that Jitter could write it for herself. Uh, so. She could, but I don't oh. know if they would um, like what she would say. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, if you read Jitterbug's column in Chronicle of the Horse, and I'll post some links to that in the uh, comments on this thread on Facebook, uh, because it is a a wonderful take on the training of humans. Yeah. And, the, uh, um, I... it, it's insightful and hilarious. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad that you enjoy it. I think you're one of her biggest fans for sure. Um, I sort of, I had to do something when I first had this horse because she, um, she was actually a neglect case, um, so I got her when mm-hmm. she was five years old. She'd been through several people's hands um, by that point since she'd been pulled out of the neglect situation. So she was a, a little sort of like halter broke, and that was kind of about it. <laughs> and right. she, she was a challenge. She was an enormous challenge. And so I, I used to call my mom at the end of the day and be like, well, this is what she tried to do to me today. And she's, my mom isn't a horse person, so she would be like, I, I'm sure that she's just trying to teach you something. 
questions. I'd be like, really? Because it just feels like she's trying to kill me. Um, so I eventually had to come up with some sort of humorous way to deal with this sort of insane challenge that I had set for myself. And I thought, you know, this horse has a ton of personality, and I'm sure that she thinks that she is accomplishing something very specific with her behavior. And so I sort of that sort of evolved into, you know, when the, we talk about things that horses do to seem wrong or crazy or silly and they have some reason they have some reason they're training us <laughs> so that's sort of how mm-hmm. that all got started correct and um you've written uh a lot of articles in a lot of different publications but your eclipse award-winning articles uh your first was something's wrong with my brain which is looking at a a former jockey dealing with the effects of trauma and concussions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a great article, uh, kind of similar experience for her. It was a female jockey as well, retired, um, that has been seen in football players mm-hmm. and the long-term impact on her life. Um, and it was a great article. Have you heard from her? How is she doing? I've not heard um, from her family super recently. Um, when I did last hear something, unfortunately, you know, her condition had worsened, which was expected. Oh. Um, she was having some difficulty finding um, support uh, as far as, like, financial support for her medical bills and that sort of thing. Um, and I actually did write a follow-up um, on that. She was trying to get some assistance through the Permanently Disabled Jockeys Fund, and um, they had actually denied her, and that sort of got into, like, how overwhelmed they are with applications from riders who not necessarily strictly are dealing with the results of repeated um, traumatic brain injury, but uh, some of them are, and it's just sort of the, the massive mm-hmm. need that exists there for for helping people who have retired from the sport with some sort of, you know, profound injury or other. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that she has, unfortunately, so far as I last knew, continued to struggle um, with her balance and, and therefore her mobility and, and that sort of thing. And that's kind of what she had been led to expect from her doctors. So that's right. not, not what you would hope for, but Unfortunately, that's that's the reality for so many people dealing with that level of brain trauma, which is, is just so sad and frustrating. And jockeys, it's jockey is a very tough. Uh, it is a tough position, a tough job because you deal with falling off, having horses fall on you. So most jockeys break multiple bones throughout their careers, uh, mm-hmm. spinal sustained spinal injuries. It is a tough, a very tough job mm-hmm. on from a physical standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then your next article, which um, is the one that kind of touched me the most because I'm dealing with a similar sort of situation, is the uh, an angel on his shoulder, the, this thoroughbred's fate, was written in ink, and that was where you profiled Kirsten Fada, inked Susan Young and Hannah Meyer, all who had a connection 
and then uh, Kirsten Fada and Inked were reunited, and she was able to adopt him in mm-hmm. dealing with aftercare mm-hmm. uh, of thoroughbreds once they retire and, or leave the track. And that's kind of, um, that's how I first quote met you was when I reached out to you thinking you might be related to people who I believe bred a horse my great-grandfather rescued. All right, yeah. And I, you know, I wanted to confirm that the horse I had found was her. Um, although, don't tell Jitter, she was the opposite of everything I've ever heard about any mare in my <laughs> life because she was like blueberry. Hello, how are you? What can I do for you? <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think it would be great in aftercare. One of the things is anybody looking at a like a clearinghouse where we can follow the horse throughout its life. And so someone like me can go in and search my great-grandfather's name and say, oh, yeah, he adopted her from the track in this year. And then I can go in and update and say she lived into her 20s and, you know, was happy and, and in a pasture and mama to a bunch of ponies. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's something that people have been calling for for some time. Um, people sort of in similar positions to you or to me that have fallen in love with a horse that is not ours. Um, and then wanted to be able to find them again. Um, there's, you know, a little bit of tracking sort of done while the horse is still in some sort of job connected to racing. So, like, if they're sold mm-hmm. and they're going to continue running, obviously the jockey club is informed of that. If they're sold and they are conti- they are continue to be bred, if they're a brood, a, a brood mare particularly, then the jockey club is um, at least aware of who's registering the foals. I, I think that they maybe keep track of the new ownership as well. Um, mm-hmm. And they can also keep track of if a horse is like officially retired from racing. So like I have Blueberry's jockey club papers, but before they, before Godolphin sent them to me, they sent them to the jockey club to make sure that they were aware this horse is no longer supposed to be racing they put a big stamp on the front of the papers uh, primarily so that you couldn't sell a horse who had maybe an injury um, that you wanted to retire and then have the person take it into their head of, I'm going to take him to the track and run him. Uh, Mm -hmm. But they would therefore have a record of the horse being retired. But after that, or if the horse kind of exits the the sort of thoroughbred system in this country, there is not really much of a tracking done um, after that. In Australia, they have been, looking at making traceability a little bit more detailed than what it currently is. I think that they sort of currently do a better job with that than we do already, but they Mm -hmm. have had um, some unfortunate stories come out in the last couple of years about their um, slaughter pipeline in Australia. And in Australia, the horse slaughter is not illegal the way it is here. So um, that's been more of a welfare concern rather than a legality issue there. But, um, of course, I didn't, regardless, I didn't play very well, understandably, with horse lovers and, and racing fans. So part of their um, response to that has been to try to improve the uh, the tracking system so that, you know, if a horse needs some place to go or if you're trying to find a specific horse, you can more easily do that. 
but in their case, they have kind of, you know, not a single authority for all of Australia, but they have, you know, Racing Victoria and, and Racing mm-hmm. Sydney. They have these sort each of state. very organized. Yeah, each state has their own very organized overarching system that can easily make a rule. And that's what all of you are just going to have to do. Whereas in America, we have we do have the Jockey Club, but they sort of just do registration stuff. And then we have the State Racing Commission. If you say, like, well, it isn't really my job to know if somebody sells a horse, especially if they're not even going to run it. And everyone's mm-hmm. kind of looking at each other like, mm, this isn't really my realm of legal responsibility. I don't know that I want to do that. So, unfortunately, it's right. not really been adopted here. And that one of the drawbacks for me is I did not know at the time that I could have checked her lip and written down a tattoo mm. mm-hmm. and been able to answer the questions. So I'm going off of a name, which might have been her bar name, might not even have been her jockey club name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the timeline fits and the geographic Um, and she was she raced unplaced four times and was a broodmare who produced twins her first time Mm. and so they decided not to try breeding her ever again and that's when she ended up in with my great grandfather Mm. who I think rescued her but I'm not sure if it was if she was in any jeopardy Mm -hmm. or if this person just said, I can't take care of her, but you can. Right. And, you know, since she did have a wonderful life, she was in a pasture, um, very much loved to do as she wanted to do when she wanted to do it. (laughs) So you couldn't ask for anything more. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, but I would like to know if if this horse that I found is her. Just, right. and, you know, just I just want to confirm. And I have my great grandfather's name. That's the only piece of information that I know for sure. Right. So, well, the one thing you could do is, um, you know, if you if you were able to, I don't know if she's still with us or not, but if you had a horse hair sample. Um, you can't. They can't identify horses that way, um, because I, of course the DNA has to be registered. So that that is sort well, of a backup yeah, option was, in lieu of a tattoo. She was sold in. She was sold in 1958. Okay, I kind of figured she was probably like this is a long time ago now, but wasn't totally sure. Yes, she. This is when I was a child, which was a very long okay, time ago. <laughs> I didn't know if you meant so, like a descendant but, of the horse he had or something, and that one might still be around, but. Uh, no, she had no descendants. She sold twins, and neither one survived. And it right. unfortunately almost it almost took her life. I think it was almost like a Rachel Alexandra, where the whoever had her said she, you know, she won't survive the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, or they decided not to breed her because the chance that she would produce twins again. Right which apparently is a thing. But, um, yeah, I would just love to know if that was her. Um, right. And, 
I don't know what her time. She passed away probably 1980, 81. Mm. So she would have been 22 or 23. Right. So, well, and the tattoos um, are, are not always readable after a certain number of years. They can sort of fade mm-hmm. and whatnot, which is why they pivoted to the microchips now. It, if I'd known, I, I probably could have read it. She was bold in 58, so she was like six years older than I am. Mm-hmm. And she was so sweet, she would have let me, <laughs> I'm sure, <laughs> see her tattoo and, you know, write it down. But uh, I might write to the bosses the uh, in Maryland and see if any of them have any record. Although I don't know if the bosses kept her or sold her. Mm. So. Yeah, and going that far back, it would be hard to say, um, particularly because that might have been Tommy, uh, I would imagine. Um, and he's gone now, unfortunately. But someone... Yeah. It, well, the the breeder's listed as Mrs. Edward Voss. Oh. Hmm. So I think that was Tommy's mom. Oh, okay. And I know he. I know he passed away. She was still alive. I just haven't reached out to him because it was weird enough reaching out to you. <laughs> <laughs> And then I wasn't and even helpful. I, no, well, actually, no. I no. You were extremely helpful, um, very straightforward, and you know, probably because people think that you're related all the time. And if you really want to foot in horse racing, go to Maryland and say you're one of those bosses. Uh, <laughs> well, and I am from Virginia, so it does really confuse people. I'll call from a Virginia area code for an interview, and then we'll do the interview, and they'll be like, "Oh, you know, so how are you related to Tommy?" And it's like. Yeah, no, it was the weirdest thing. I would go to Colonial and I would watch the bosses start horses, and I'm just kind of sitting here like, oh man, that's that, that must be nice. <laughs> so, well, you could be. I mean, back in the old country, you know, several generations, you may be. Although you said you think the family name was changed. I I think so because I have wondered that many times, especially since my uh, family is sort of originally from the Baltimore area. Um, But I think if he goes a couple generations back, they did some reading on Tommy. um, They sort of come from Pennsylvania and they had been in Pennsylvania for quite a while. Whereas mine um, had just kind of gotten to Baltimore and had not been there for as long as his Pennsylvania family seemed to have already been here. Plus I think that the name was written down wrong or something um, when my grandfather I think he was um, immigrated into Baltimore we, we kind of think that it was actually maybe Vossen instead of Voss but there were already Vosses uh-huh. around so we think that maybe they just and he did not speak very good English at all so I think that he was probably just like yeah sure it's, uh, whatever you say that's it <laughs> and we think that that okay. might be what happens but we're not totally sure okay yeah I my great grandfather's name kind of, I think, had a similar transition from Germany, although they immigrated before the revolution, Mm -hmm. a revolutionary war, or just over time. And and people didn't spell well in the 1700s. Right. 
So <laughs> it was all relative at um, that point. <laughs> and my poor father thought he was Dutch, and it turns out they were German from Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, my dad never knew that. <laughs> because when yeah. I found out on Ancestry, he was already gone. So, <laughs> but, um, so, and then you've also, we've been talking about the aftercare, um, the aftercare of thoroughbreds, and you've done three additional articles on that. And where do we stand? What are the improvements that you see uh, that still need to be made? Um, I think it's sort of a challenging question because when you really get down to it, um, we sort of have the facilities now um, that are prepared to properly retrain and adopt out uh, X-ray sources. We have an accreditation body that is there to watch over them, make sure everyone's doing what they're supposed to. They're very good at that. Um, But now the problem is kind of like there isn't enough cash in the system to keep everyone going. Um, The the infrastructure exists, the spots exist for horses to go to, but they're still kind of struggling to make sure that they can keep up their day-to-day operations because there's minimal kind of mandatory funding. Um, mm-hmm. Racehorse owners can choose to donate to aftercare, or they can choose not to. Um, and some are very, very good about it, and some are not. Um, there, there are now a couple of mandatory funding mechanisms in place uh, where there is a uh, mandatory fee when you uh, issue a report of a mare having been bred to the jockey club, and then again when you register a foal. Um, and I think a couple of the sales companies, maybe just in the last year or so went from offering you have the option to donate X percentage of this horse's sale price, whether you're the buyer mm-hmm. or the seller, or they went from this being an optional checkoff to like, okay, you're doing this now. And that's just going to be, we're just going to add that to your bill. And that's going to be what it is. Um, there has been a lot of resistance to those mandatory measures and they are not expensive mandatory measures in the grand scheme of keeping racehorses. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, it seems like the people who were kind of already on board with understanding, like, this is not just a kindness, this is not just a welfare thing, this is like a publicity or a public relations thing, like, you better look like you're taking care of these horses or the public is not going to stand for it. That understanding right. is not there with everyone yet. I think that they still, there there are still people, some people, not not all of the racing folks, but there are still some people who think like, yeah, this is somebody else's problem. This is a charity. I don't really have to do this, but like that's that's not reality for right. my perception anymore. I I think we need to start. I mean, everybody needs to start seeing it as a duty. These horses yeah. work and and provide for trainers, owners, jockeys, grooms, stables, racetracks. Everybody needs to make sure that when that horse retires, since he can't control his own winnings, that, you know, the funds are there for him, be it at old friends or in a second career or even as an OTDB pasture pony. 
Right. Uh, and I think it is a duty to everybody, owners, breeders. Everybody should give a little. And if everybody gave a little, then the funding would not be an issue. Right. And it's also, you know, so variable between states still, like everything else in racing. Like, you know, in California, they have um, the, let's see, it's called CARMA. I'm trying to remember what it stands for, California Account retirement management account for something like that um, where they have, where they do um, take out a percentage um, from each. Uh, I think it's like there's a fee for the owner when you enter, then there's a fee removed from the trainer mm-hmm. and the jockeys um, portion um, for any race in California. And I think that that's like an opt out program. So I think you're automatically opted in and then that's just what it is unless you decide to come out of it. And then there's, you know, there's other states where trainers, horsemen's associations do um, contribute like $5 a start or something like that to either the TAA or to a particular group. And so, you know, and New York does a really great job with their funding mechanism. They have really well-funded organizations in New York as a result of that. Um, but mm-hmm it's sort of like the horses that are most at risk are the ones who are on these like B circuits and C circuits anyway. And very often those are the ones where everyone's kind of saying, you know, the purses are too small. I can't afford to have one more thing taken out of my earnings. You know, the commissions and the, and the um, horsemen's groups are kind of saying like, we can't afford this either. We're just trying to keep racing running. So it's, it's kind of like it, it has improved um, a lot from the, you know, a decade or so ago when that first became a question for people, but it, mm-hmm. it's not sort of, you, you can still slip through the cracks very easily as a horse and not have some place that is going to be very easy to go and, and not have the money coming with you to support that next step. And, and that's the problem. Right. Because you and Joe did a story about the deputy who ended up in a bail pen. Right. Yeah, the bail pen pipeline is the other thing that's that's kind of looming on our horizon, I'm afraid. And that is something, um, you know, how does that work? Is that a, is it a scam where people are getting these horses and then, you know, selling them to the highest bidders and then reselling them? Are they, no, in, I, I are think... they in legitimate jeopardy or, or well, is it see, that's the latest get-rich-quick that's that's a Pardon? fantastic question. That's a fantastic question, and I think that we don't really know. Um, you know, so the way that it seems to work is, like, you'll have these pins that um, are run by people who uh, either say that they have a contract with a slaughterhouse either in Mexico or Canada because horse slaughter is not legal in this or is it does mm-hmm. not legally take place in this country. It's not technically illegal, but there there is no slaughter in the U.S. right now. So you have these pens that pop up usually kind of near the southern or northern borders who will say, like, look, I buy horses for slaughter. I have these horses. Um, I'm going to post pictures and video of them on Facebook. And if somebody on Facebook wants to pay me for them, then I'll let you have them instead of sending them to the kill. What you don't really know, though, is so, like, does that person really have a contract? Or do they have connections that could really actually send a horse to kill? Or are they just saying that? Even if they do have connections to make that possibly happen, did they pay? what did they pay for this horse when they got it? Because usually they go to livestock auctions and they buy horses that way. 
But recently, horses mm-hmm. at livestock auctions have become more and more expensive. So somebody who runs a bail pen is only obviously going to send a horse to kill if they're going to make money doing that. And the meat prices are kind of somewhere between, I think you'd get somewhere between, it varies, but the four to 650 range, 400 to 650 range is kind of what I've been told is, is probably what you could expect, maybe 700. And anything above mm-hmm. that, if you purchase the horse for more than that, you're going to lose money if you send it to kill. So what they've increasingly been doing is saying, like, well, I'm going to send this horse to the killer in two days unless somebody pays me $1,000 or $1,500. And it's like, <laughs> are, are you really going to send the horse? Because it, you're not going to put yourself in a spot where you're going to lose money or you're just sort of, you know, preying on people's emotions. And sometimes it'll be mm-hmm. like they want one buyer for the horse. Other times they'll say, you know, this is the amount I want for the horse, and uh, here's my PayPal and my Venmo. So anyone can send me a donation towards the horse's bail price, which is what they usually call it. And then the horse is free and someone can just have him, which is kind of a worrying system because you're contributing towards a fundraising goal with no way of knowing whether that goal has actually been met because you're relying on the bail pen owner to tell you that. Um, And then if the bail is actually met or they say that it's actually met and they release the horse, then they're just kind of giving a horse to someone and can that person afford a horse or do they just take the horse for free because they couldn't afford the horse? And then what is that going to happen? What is going to happen with that horse after that? So th- there's just a lot that we, we don't have any way to know because there's no oversight for this. Um, they're, they're very successful businesses, but they're not, you know, businesses where they have to be specifically licensed to do this through the, the USDA or something like that where there's oversight. Um, right. In states that require livestock dealer licenses, you could sort of get some oversight there. There might be some oversight from, like, state animal health authorities. But generally, there's not somebody sitting there kind of saying, like, you're telling people the horse, you need a thousand more dollars to bail this horse out, but you've raised 2,000 already. There's kind of no one sitting there to tell you that as the public. You're just kind of relying on what you're given as far as information. So, yeah, the, the deputy ends and- up in that situation. And, um, you know, my experience with the bail pens that I monitor more recently is that they have figured out that off-track thoroughbreds are worth a lot because people get very upset to see them in a bail pen situation. People mm-hmm. see them and are like, oh, my gosh, this horse made so much money. It's so outrageous that he's here. He can't be here. Let me pay to get him out. So they'll actually seek out horses that they think are going to make them more, of course. And the thoroughbred stallion was, you know, jackpot for this guy. So that's what he did. Mm-hmm. And they're probably operating just within or not violating any laws that are on the books that could be used to identify them and expose them and have them face. I mean, because that sounds like extortion to me. I, if you could prove Although it's that. It's so general that. Yeah. Yeah. It's well. It's it's ex, it's exploitive, mm-hmm. but it's not a specific. They don't have a specific target in mind. Right. Anybody who loves horses is being extorted. Right. So. And that's why they've gotten as big as they have. You know, in the in the aftercare realm, like I'm paying a lot of attention to that because I have paid attention to that sort of aspect of the aftercare issue for several years. 
And in the years I've been watching it, it's gotten bigger and bigger and the prices are getting bigger and the social media audiences for these pages are getting bigger. And I think that it's gotten sort of beyond the point now where the industry, the racing industry can do a ton really to reverse it because it's an entire economic driver now. Like, you know, these guys mm-hmm. are, are paying the prices they are based on what they can expect to get based on their Facebook algorithms, all this kind of stuff. This is not necessarily they're just snapping up a horse who had nowhere to go. They're paying good money for a horse because they know they can make good money. And so just having a charity there to take an off-track racehorse is not necessarily going to divert horses who have economic value in some other avenue but we'll still have egg on our faces as an industry when one of our horses ends up in a situation where people perceive it to be at enormous risk, and that's what they are perceiving. Right. So there has to, there's got to be some way to cut off their supply, as far as, or at least make it more difficult. I think if you made it difficult yeah. enough for them, they'd find, you know, some other sort of niche that they could, you know, get, seek out another type of horse. You'd, you'd rather they didn't seek any horse out. But, you know, we could at least sort of make it more difficult to take thoroughbreds in particular, but so far that's not happened. There are, um, you know, there are tracks that have policies in their stall applications that say, like, if you sell a horse to slaughter, we're not going to let you have stalls here anymore. Well, that only works mm-hmm. if you have stalls there in the first place. So a couple right. of the people I followed up on, turns out they didn't have stalls to have them revoked. So there wasn't really much of anything the racetracks could do. And the commissions are not super eager to put restrictions in place on somebody legally about whether or not they can sell an animal because you know they feel like that's really not within their bounds legally. And that's what people are doing if they're selling them at an auction and then the kill buyer gets them. So mm-hmm. it's hard to say there's something illegal about that, and yet it's you know, we're still in this this sort of perception problem, regardless. So it's it's very tricky and frustrating. Now, what about state humane law enforcement? Because I know I used to watch Animal Cops a lot, and I think it was in Texas. Um, some of their agents in Houston actually went to a livestock auction and kind of monitored what what was there for sale, what the condition of the animals were, you know, that from a from a humane law enforcement perspective. What about gathering intel in that way on these bail pens? Um, you maybe shame would... them out of the business. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I mean, you know. The thing about them is, is kind of that, you know, their whole part of their pitch when they're trying to get people to either purchase or uh, sort of crowdfund is that it's a time-sensitive thing. You know, this truck is coming on Friday, and this is Sunday, and so you have five days. So, I mean, generally they're able to do what they do by moving horses in and out so quickly. So yeah. they're not, you know, by and large – they're not sitting somewhere long enough for a humane officer to come in and say, this horse hasn't been fed in three weeks because, you know, it's been here all this time and look at it. You know, they can say very easily whether it's true or not. I got this horse like this because I go to the livestock auction every week. And, you Mm -hmm. know, probably the horse is going to be gone really quickly anyway on to, you know, whatever the next 
stop in their process is. Um, I know that there have been kind of a couple of questions with different pens about transmissible diseases and whether um, health paperwork is being filled out appropriately when horses cross state lines, which seems in the grand mm-hmm. scheme of, you know, perception issues, like not that big of a deal, but that is a legal aspect of moving animals around and selling horses and, uh, and transporting. So that is kind of an area where they have been looked at more closely because with horses going in and out of the same pens, in and out of the same trailers, if you do get an incident of strangles or herpes virus or something, it spreads very quickly and very easily and causes a, an animal health problem, um, possibly beyond Correct. the pen itself. So, so that is something that they have been looked at for some of them. Um, but again, it's just such a high turnover business. I'm not sure how easy it is for, you know, authorities to really say, you know, you're consistently doing the wrong thing with this one horse. You'd have to catch the horse at the right moment. And that's a little bit challenging. Right. That's, it's, it's sad, but, you know, maybe somebody will, somebody will eventually figure out a way, just as somebody will figure out a way to be what these people are, to make an easy buck. Somebody will figure out how to, you know, just discourage and make them see it's not worth the trouble. Yeah. That this is going to. I had plaster. I plaster their picture all over, <laughs> all over town. <laughs> this man abuses horses, or woman. Well, and whatever. And see, there there have been people who have kind of gone with that impulse and been like, you know, I'm going to sort of shame these people for doing what they do, and they'll share, you know, the post of you know whatever horse looking pathetic. But the problem is that with that is they shared the post, so Facebook is now going to serve it to more people. And that's how mm-hmm. these guys get the customers that they get. So I, I follow right. some people on Facebook I'm, and some groups who will, you know, oh, we've got to let everyone know this horse is here. We've got to let people know about this. And it's like you just made more money for the guy who has him I, is, is sort of the problem. You know, I, I have to consider I, that in my reporting too. I'm talking about – no, I'm talking about the guy's picture, not what he does, not where he is, right. not how to, yeah. how to send him money, but – you know, abuses horses. He's a dirt bag. I know that <laughs> would be considered bullying, but, um, you know, to make them see it's not worth the trouble. It's too yeah. much trouble. Uh, although he, they probably have no shame anyway, or they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. No, I, I don't think that they're too worried about how people look at it. I think that they think like any kind of, if people know they're doing this, then some, if 20 people see a post about the fact that they're doing this, then one or two of them might be like, oh, the poor horses. I should see if he has any horses that need help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they figure anything is kind of anything that gets their, you know, business name out there, even if it's derogatory. They, they yeah. figure it's going to help them. And they're, they're not all that concerned about what people think, as far as I can make out. Sad. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm kind of a downer guest to have on a radio show. No, but these are important topics because, you know, talk about it and maybe, you know, maybe somebody listening will have dealt with a similar dilemma and this worked. 
so yeah, absolutely. you know try to have it and you'd have to do it state by we need a national i agree with dr uh brian langlois in lancaster pa i don't know if you've ever seen him or heard of him on twitter mm-hmm. yeah. uh, he's another one of our favorite racing guests and he wants a federal board that that mm-hmm throughout the United States that regulates racing, a federal laws that regulate. And I kind of agree. Oh, yeah. I mean, that people it, have been saying it, that in the business forever. It would make it much easier in a regulatory standpoint, from a safety standpoint, from uh, and combating, you know, problems and issues as long as it's not the actual federal government. <laughs> right. But, you know, it's it's a board of people who know what they're doing. Um, and isn't, you know, isn't going to be subject to the whims of which party, Republican or Democrat, is in power at a, a specific time. Non-part, right. Bipartisan, nonpartisan. Right. Um but I think it would help, especially um, regulatory drug testing and double racing substances, et cetera, and, and even violations. Right. Uh, one of the well, stories you recently covered, Bob Baffert's hearing in Arkansas from Mm -hmm. 2020 Gamine and what was the other horse? Charlatan. Charlatan. At Oaklawn. And you've also covered the Belmont fire, which was recently Mm -hmm. um, two weeks ago. Yeah. It feels more recent than that, but yeah, (laughs) that's correct. Uh, so, um, of course, two horses, they were unable to save two, but they got, what, 58 to safety. And in reading your story and, and several of the stories, these are a group of people who pulled together and did a phenomenal job in a very short period of time because they were able to, uh, was it Mr. Falcone was able to, muster enough hands to go into the barns and get the eight horses out mm-hmm. um, and to safety. Have they figured out what happened, what caused the fire? I've not heard an official cause yet. Um, the last I knew, they, they seemed to believe that it had started um, potentially above the stalls, but they weren't totally sure about that yet either when I was last kind of checking in on that. Um, yeah. But, but they haven't declared an official cause. There's so many things in a, in a barn that are just kindling, you know, in any other context. So it's really um, such a great relief that the, the fire didn't get worse. That particular barn has got um, two other barns of the same size. And obviously it was a very big barn because it had 60 horses Correct. in it. 
it's got two of the same size on either side of it that are very close to it. So um, they're, everyone is, is very fortunate that not only did they get this one knocked down pretty quickly and get the horses out, but also that it didn't spread because that really could have it been, right. you know, an out of hand situation very quickly. So it's well done by everyone there. I, you know, when I was a kid, I can remember one of the very few times I ever saw my great grandfather angry was he boarded horses and, and a lot of the boarders were teenagers and a bunch of them were sitting outside the barn smoking. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather saw that and he, I mean, I'd never seen him angry about anything. And he gave those kids a talking to mm-hmm. and told them, you know, they don't, they don't stand by the barn. They don't stand around his great grandchildren. They don't stand around his house they want to smoke, they can go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and part of that was because the barn was so, is so flying. Everything is incendiary mm-hmm. almost. Oh, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, that was uh, a good thing. And then you also covered the rescue of the Calder Track cats. Uh, uh, the Calder Track in Florida closed. Was it Florida? Right. Yeah. Yep, it's in Florida. And um, two ladies took it upon themselves and got together and found new homes for every one of the cats. Um, some feral, some not, uh, with other other tracks, other trainers, other horse people. Which I, I like that kind of story because it is, you know, it is showing people getting together and, and working toward a common goal and and doing good. Yeah, absolutely. And and who can resist a good cat story on the Internet? I know. Just they were very cute cats on the, in the article. <laughs> they were. So, I wanted the cats are them. very important. Uh, cats are very important around the barns because they keep the mice population at bay mm. most of the time and most they're special most of the time <laughs> <laughs> and then of course we we kind of touched earlier on the um, federal drug scandal cases which hit last year mm-hmm. um, and who did that involve so I think that there were in total 27 defendants in the first round of indictments. Um, and then there was later a superseding indictment where some of them were dropped and additional charges were added on some of the ones that remained. Um, in a couple of cases, we know that there are now, um, or in, in two, I think, cases, we know that there are now guilty pleas at the others. The, the case files are just kind of sitting there. I'm kind of assuming that maybe there's a, a plea in the works, but I don't actually know for sure. But it was um, trainers, assistant trainers, veterinarians, um, and drug supply people, uh, as well as a, several pharmacists as well. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of a, um, a large kind of large scale kind of net of people that were um, being charged with drug adulteration and misbranding were kind of the, the main charges for uh, the, the first indictment and the superseding. 
related to um, them distributing and using and selling drugs that were designed, um, according to their labeling at least, primarily to try to enhance performance of resources. So um, we've had quite a few readers talk about, like, well, you know, were these drugs significant in the horse's performance or not? You know, what was really in them? What did they really do? They're not really being charged with race fixing. They're being charged with, you know, distributing, we're using, we're selling misbranded drugs. And um, I don't know that it's going to be very challenging to prove that the substances that they were distributing, based on the, the pictures I've seen of them, were not labeled um, in a way that the FDA would have signed off on. There were several that were just mm-hmm. plastic bottles with, you know, Sharpie written on them. And that was kind of the extent of their labeling. So that's obviously right. not something that has been inspected by anybody or, or produced in a, a uh, federally approved manufacturing facility or anything like that. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward. We were initially told that the investigation was continuing at the time that they issued the first round of indictments. Um, and there were some, like, some, some, some additional indictments around the same time that um, included horse racing people, but was focused a little bit more on kind of a money laundering scheme. And we're not sure okay. did they come upon that as a side effect of studying the drug adulteration situation or vice versa. But we were sort of told at the time there's going to be more indictments coming. And we kind of keep hearing that. But of course the pandemic hit and for a while they couldn't convene a grand jury because they couldn't have that many people Mm -hmm. in a room together. So we've sort of heard that as an explanation for why there haven't been any additional defendants, but we kind of keep being told very vaguely like, well, there's going to be more and, you know, right. Here we are more than a year later, and we're kind of like, well, are there, are there not? We're really not sure. And were they at a specific track or a specific jurisdiction, New York or Florida, or were they kind of all around the, doing this all around the country? So the charges um, primarily came from the Southern District of New York. Um, they had everybody sort of arrested all at the same time, but they were in different places when it happened. So you have a few case files that were transferred from Florida, and I think maybe one or two from New, Jer- New Jersey, but the case itself is all under um, SDNY now. But yeah, these were trainers okay. that went between either New York or New Jersey in the spring and summer and Florida in the winter uh, for the most part. Uh, I know that was true of the thoroughbred people. I'm less sure about the standardbred people and that indictment and how they traveled, but it was usually across uh, they were usually doing business in more than one state as far as mm-hmm. I know. Yeah. And I recall one of the articles, the drug, one of the suppliers was, I mean, putting lives at risk because the, the contamination of the substances with mm-hmm. bug particles and, uh, flex of things was Uh kind of let's just make money and who cares who we hurt yeah that um that was a defendant um scott robinson who entered a guilty plea and um so there were some additional details that came out about uh, the investigative information that the fbi had gotten on him in the course of their investigation when he entered the guilty plea there was some more sort of background detail on that 
uh, beyond what had been in the indictment. But it was interesting because he was on a separate indictment along with another person who actually was a pharmacist. This guy was not a pharmacist or a veterinarian. And I had been familiar with their names before because I had done some looking into um, a compounding pharmacy down in Florida and then separately a couple of Internet companies that were selling um, drugs that were clearly designed to act like performance enhancers just online. Um, and I didn't know at the time that I was doing that investigation that the same two guys were kind of behind both sides of, of those types of operations. I didn't really figure that out until I was sort of farther along um, in looking at them. So then when their names popped up on this indictment, I was like, oh, yeah, I know you guys. Like, <laughs> I was looking at you a few years ago. I just didn't know the scope of what you were doing, obviously. Um, but, yeah, like the, mm -hmm. in the case of the compounding pharmacy um, that the other co-defendant had been involved with, it had had some really upsetting inspections from the state board of pharmacy in Florida because the conditions were so sort of filthy and things were not labeled properly according to the report and that sort of thing. So seeing that additional information in the, the documents uh, when he entered his plea was not wholly surprising, but certainly disgusting. Yeah. And then um, in addition, uh, I used to, I enjoyed, and I still enjoy your your features with um, Pollock Report and also Chronicle of the Horse. Uh, your amateur mm -hmm. features are uh, great. The the one about what you've learned from Jitterbug, mm -hmm. I've read it multiple times, and it still brings tears to my eyes because it's such a beautiful article about your journey with her. And this is, you wrote it, I think, in 2015. Mm -hmm. But um, realizing, you know, that she was getting you ready for your next horse. Mm -hmm. um, that was just, it's, a, it's to this day still a beautiful article. And I'm going to post links to Chronicle of the Horse and Pollock Report um, because you are a really, really talented writer. Oh, thank you. Uh, I cannot I cannot say that enough. <laughs> and <laughs> three, three Eclipse Awards, two in one year in each of the category in two different categories is, I think you're the first woman who's done that, coming back to women I in am. racing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that was a proud congratulate Joe because I knew he would win an eclipse sooner rather than later. Absolutely, yeah. Because he's he's set, you you as well, you're both set to take the place of um, Bill Knack, phenomenal writer, and you, y'all rival Tim Layton and Steve Haskins. Oh gosh, and those are big shoes to fill. <laughs> it, your use of language and um, styles are just phenomenal. Well, thank Very you. Talented. We, we appreciate that. <laughs> so, um, you've done your Barn Buddy series, which I always loved, looking at the different uh, different creatures who keep our equine friends um, happy and healthy. Cats, goats. <laughs> What's the most interesting barn buddy you've encountered 
in your hmm. travels? I I mean I there was a sheep that would hang out with the thoroughbred mare and I and I just sort of have never thought of sheep as being at all interested in something that much bigger than them uh as a horse. So I thought that was kind of interesting, but I think the one that I sort of go back to um is Pierre the pig um who's a little um I guess he's technically a mini pig. He's he's fully grown now and he's not very big, but he's not like a teacup pig or something either. Um, and he hangs out with the uh, the crew at Summerfield Sales, which is based in Florida, but they bring horses to sell up to New York and also to Kentucky. So when mm-hmm. times are normal um, and I'm going to the, the sales uh, with Joe for, for some reason, then we'll, we'll stop in and see Pierre. And uh, we, we met Pierre when he was very small. And, of course, he was a big attraction. People would walk by and like, oh, my gosh, there's a small pig there. And he's he's grown up now, and he thinks that he runs the entire world. Um, he thinks he runs the shed row. He thinks everyone should have food for him. So he's if you see him, he's actually just kind of really disinterested in whether you have blueberries. And after that, he doesn't really <laughs> care about you. But we really get excited to see him. So we go over and fuss over him and try to bring him a healthy treat every time there is an auction, and, and we're actually able to do that. Oh, my goodness. And you're also, you started a journey with an off-the-track thoroughbred. Um, now, are you in the retired racehorse? Is it the retired racehorse or thoroughbred makeover? Um, the organization is the retired racehorse project, and the event is the thoroughbred makeover. So um, okay. we are both accepted for that. Um, you have to apply for this um, event. It's kind of like a a training competition to see Mm -hmm. how quickly um, you can, or not not how quickly, but you you sort of have a set amount of time to take a horse off the track. And then your goal is to get to this um, really big show at the Kentucky Horse Park that offers several different disciplines that you could compete in. And it's supposed to sort of spotlight how versatile thoroughbreds are because they can make this transition so well that they could be at a horse show, you know, within less than a year from their last work or race. Um, So we are both in for that. Um, We will see if we get kind of far enough along in our training that by early October, I feel like he can handle that environment. Um, He's really, really sensible, and he he adjusts to things very quickly, and he's very smart. But that's also a really enormous show, and there's, like, a lot of chaos at any show at the horse park Mm -hmm. just because there's people and dogs and golf carts and ATVs and all kinds of stuff. So I'm not going to put him sort of through that unless I feel like he has been to enough competitions and gotten used to the thing of getting on the trailer, being in a busy area, and going to work and being okay with it. So um, right. that's kind of my only caveat is, like, we if we get enough prep, then we'll go. Um, if we don't get enough prep, it's okay because, like, you know, I got him hoping that he would be my partner for many years, not necessarily just yeah. hoping a horse would take me to the makeover. There's people who are very – into the makeover and so you know their excitement is this training journey with this horse with this deadline and that's awesome because they're really really good at it but it was just Mm -hmm. kind of like the timing happened to work out for us to apply for this so like ah you know it would be great to participate if we can get there we'll get there if we can't it's okay now his jockey club name is underscore yes that's right correct and he is an Uncle Mo Colt out of 
a mare you followed. Yes, if I remember she, correctly. Yeah, she's a lemon drop kid mare named Unspurned. And I actually groomed her. I used to um, work for Cara Bloodstock from time to time when I was in college and just after college. Um, I would help show horses for them, groom horses for them at the sales. And I, I didn't do that, um, you know, on a full-time, full-time basis. I would just sort of drop in when I had a few days off from classes or from whatever my, my regular job was. But I did it enough that I handled quite a few horses. And, like, this filly was the only one I ever got really, really attached to because she was just so smart and she was so kind. And I feel like so often it's kind of like if you have one that's that smart, they they know that they don't have to be kind. <laughs> so mm-hmm. she was a really unique combination. And she um, she was there for her breeders, and she did not make her reserve price. The first time she went to auction, so they sent her back, and I actually got to groom her again. Um, she didn't make her reserve that time either, so they kept her, they ran her, and she became a, a multiple graded stakes place horse for them. She did great, and this is her first baby. So, of course, I was very excited to and meet him and um, he reminds me an awful lot of her as far as his personality so um, when he turned out not to be all that great on the racetrack um, or at least not not able to do all that much on the racetrack he had several injuries Um, they Mm -hmm. eventually just sort of said you know what kid we're tired of you emailing us to ask about the source so here (laughs) go ahead and adopt him just ride off into the sunset together what the heck with it (laughs) so now, that's, you know, that's another uh, interesting thing in the aftercare realm. The dolphin has a phenomenal aftercare program. Yes. For all of their horses on either, no matter where they are in the world. Right. Uh, because I think they have a, they have their own retirement farm and they have placement service that, that sends horses out for a second career if that's warranted. So that is, um, I think you have, you've commented you're lucky he went to Godolphin. Yeah. I, I was thrilled when they bought him at auction. So they, they sent him to, to sale as well. Um, and he sold in Saratoga as a yearling for $400,000, um, which is crazy. Cause I think the first time his mother came up for sale, she, um, she failed to meet her reserve at $59,000. So that worked out very well for the breeders in that situation. Um, but I was psyched for him that that's where he ended up because they knew they had that program. Um, they work with mm-hmm. nonprofit accredited um, organizations, but then they also will occasionally work with um, private trainers who they feel comfortable placing a horse with to give them some initial skills, and then that trainer can sell that horse on. Um, and actually, my trainer, who has worked with Jitterbug and I for these many years now, is somebody who works with them very closely. So I sort of was very fortunate that he went someplace where there was an aftercare system for him to go to. But also, I think that I was working with someone that they could feel confident, like, you know, I'm going to have somebody helping me who really knows what they're doing. And, and so it, it all fell into place very nicely for us. Correct. And what crop from Uncle Mo was he? Or do you remember? Do you know? Oh, gosh. That's a question for my husband. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, he was a, a 2017, but I, I can't remember how long Uncle Mo had been at stud at that point. 
um, he was he was established by that point. Like that was mm-hmm. that that was a I, he was established by that point, and I think I think 2017 is um one of his really good years. So that's probably why underscore sold for four hundred. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, because uh, Uncle Mo has done very well. Yeah, yeah, he had serious momentum so. by then. He retired um, end of 2011, so 2012 would have been his first breeding season. So 2013 would have been the first foals. Crop. So I guess he would have been then like the fourth crop or so. I'm I'm thinking. So mm. yeah, he was he was a good cross for that that mare, and it, I'm. I'm only a little sorry for them that he only ran the one time he, he ran fourth in a maiden race at Oakland. And he just, he had a series of really minor injuries, but they were kind of just enough to like, you know, he'd get through something and he'd get back to training and then he'd get something else. And, and none of right. it is anything that's going to inhibit him. As far as we know at this point, anything that's going to inhibit him in a second career, but it was just sort of enough to be bothersome and probably expensive. I'm assuming <laughs> for Gondolphin mm-hmm. to, you know, have spent all this money on this horse, spend a lot of subsequent money on the horse, and then just not have it pan out. Like, my um, my friends and family who are not in racing find that staggering. Like, they paid what for yeah. him, and they just sort of, like, let you adopt him. <laughs> but, of course, they're used to that. You know, that's how it goes mm-hmm. sometimes in racing. And I think they're uh, among their trainers and, and their operations are among the more responsible in that they don't continue pushing. They do what's best for the horse, mm-hmm. not what's right. best for their bottom line. And you gotta yeah. admire him. Now, how does he get the? How does he get the bar name Blueberry? <laughs> so um, you know, Godolphin has a number of horses in pretty high level stakes. And I, I'm terrible about remembering who everybody's silks are. So if I'm watching a, a big stakes race and I'm not as familiar as I should be with the, the contestants, but I know there's a Godolphin horse in here that's supposed to be a big deal. I just sort of look for the little blue dot floating around in, in the group. And that's how I could pick out like, oh, yeah, that's the turf horse that I'm supposed to be watching. Okay, got it. And so it, it occurred to me at some point, it just looks like a little blueberry sort of bobbing along in, in the group. And since he only ran the one time, he he was, you know, he was a little, his, his jockey was a little blueberry on the other side of the, the racetrack. So I just thought, you know, he should be called something cute. He's a, kind of a little petite guy. You know, he needs kind of a cute name and you can't really make a short name out of underscore. You're not going to call him undies or something <laughs> like that. So you have to go in a different direction altogether and, I thought, oh, we'll call him Blueberry. That that would be cute. So that is, I like that. And I have um, Jitterbug, and and so you can't have something with a really serious name like Steve or something next to a horse named Jitterbug because that's just already right. sort of silly name. <laughs> so you need something else that's equally kind of so. But uh, and he is he's uh, fifteen hands. Fifteen two. So he is on the um, small. Fifteen two, okay. Yeah, we we think now that he, he has on front the shoes, side. he may be closer to fifteen three, but he's just you know he's not a big. I know that he'll add muscle as we go along, but he just doesn't seem to me like he has a big wide sort of honking frame to him, even for being small. Mm-hmm. Like he's got, you know, he's kind of narrow. He's got 
appropriately sized joints and feet for his size, but he doesn't, I don't look at him and think like, oh, you're going to grow a ton, or at least I hope he's not going to yeah. grow a ton. I don't think, I don't think he will. I think he's going to be kind of a little dude and that's fine. I kind of wanted something a little bit smaller after riding a half Bergeron for the last 10 years. So <laughs> this will work out just fine. <laughs> so uh, we have a police horse named BB at NOPD and I swear mm-hmm. she could be Jitterbug's sister. <laughs> People say that it's, a lot about her and police horses because so many of them are, um, you know, perched around thoroughbred crosses. Um, but I, I know Jitterbug didn't start her life at Angola Prison. So <laughs> that's where BB started. <laughs> <laughs> but BB has her own Facebook page and has oh, attitudes to spare. Yes. Oh, I think now I she's been her. quiet lately. Um, okay. She's been a little quiet, quiet lately. Mm-hmm. So, um, and with the pandemic, you can't go. You just can't just go drop into the barn. Right. So, but uh, as soon as we're back to normal, that's the first thing I'm going to do is drive her to City Park and go to the barn. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And visit the NOPD horses. Uh, we also have Ace the Dancing Horse. Oh, yes. I saw is, a video of him. Mm-hmm. He is. He's really sweet, too. Um, so Jitterbug, is, how is she, uh, how is, is Blueberry's uh, internship progressing? <laughs> Has she laid down the law? Is she lulling him into a false sense of security? You know, I, I had fun kind of setting up that, that character dynamic between the two of them. Um, and I, because I was expecting she was going to be really jealous. Like, if I have her in the cross ties grooming her and I walk away because, like, a horse in a stall is kind of making a weird noise or doing something strange and I'm just going to, like, you know, peep in on them, make sure they're okay, she gets really upset. Like, she starts pacing. Mm-hmm. She's, like, nickering at me. Like, how dare you? This is supposed to be my time with you. What are you doing over there? So I was thinking, you know, I'm going to have this horse who I'm going to have to spend a lot of time with, and and her stall is right next to the grooming stall. So she's going to have a front row seat to me giving attention to someone. And she has really not cared. I mean, I have, like, two pictures of both of them kind of standing side by side in their two different stalls, and that's kind of it, because otherwise she's just standing in the back of the stall munching hay, watching the cows outside. Like, she could not care less, apparently that I'm spending time with this new kid. So I don't know how involved in a, a project manager she's going to actually end up being because so far she's in actual practice not concerned. I might have to fictionalize that part a little bit if I'm going to keep that a thing going forward because she's not instructing him too much at this stage. But that could be famous last words. Maybe she'll teach him how to, you know, spin and drop me in another couple of days. So maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> As I was about to say, when he bucks, the first time he bugs, <laughs> that's going to be her. Uh, yeah. That picture you posted yesterday, though, she looks a little like she has something to say. She just hasn't uh, <laughs> hadn't said it yet. And bless his heart, because he's looking just like happy as a little clam. <laughs> uh, standing there, and I'm thinking, oh, Jitterbug's about to let loose. <laughs> that was why I told them hi on that Facebook post. <laughs> so, but uh, 
And folks, when you read the articles, I'm going to post Jitterbug's uh, a link to Jitterbug's articles at uh, columns at Chronicle of the Horse. And this is a phenomenal just to look at life and look at life with horses um, from the perspective of the horse. So, um, and I, like I said, I've said, I, I know I'm crazy, but I think of her as a sentient being <laughs> because you've given her her own voice. Yeah, well, she, she, she comes across that way in real life, too. People meet her in real life, and they're like, oh, she's so expressive. Her face is so expressive. And I'm like... Yeah, it really wasn't hard to imagine what she was saying because her her body language and her facial expressions are just like she she's not only saying something to you most of the time she's saying it loudly so it's it's hard to sort of miss. Mm-hmm. So, and of course we're coming up on Kentucky Derby a week from this Saturday. Um, do you have a favorite? I know you have a bit of an advantage because you live with the haiku handicapper. Um, but do you have a favorite? Are you still? You know, I'm still sort of mulling. I I need to kind of go over the field a little more carefully to have a a super educated answer, but I just have not heard anybody say anything bad about essential quality yet. It's the the cop-out answer because he's going to be the favorite, but the people that I know who've actually had eyes on him are just like, yeah, I'm not seeing anything that dissuades me from thinking that he deserves to be the favorite. And the last few years Mm -hmm. of the Derby, the the favorite has usually done pretty well. So it's, it's hard to sort of see where there's a hole in his strategy. He seems like he's a pretty versatile horse as far as like how the race sets up for him. Doesn't, it doesn't seem like he requires one type of, of setup as far as the pace or where he's positioned, and that will help him in a race like this because, you know, they, they all come from prep races of, like, eight horses maybe, and then they, they show up against 19 others, and it's just sort of, you can see, mm-hmm. you can sort of see their brains kind of into that first turn going, like, what in the world am I supposed to? They didn't tell me there was going to be this many other guys here. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, race <laughs> strategies fall apart a little bit because they're just, right. there's no way to prepare them for and, that. But it sounds like he's versatile, and that will help him. And the draw, I mean, because a lot of a few of my favorites have ended up in the fourteen or below slot, mm-hmm. and those poor horses just get the crap beat out of them. Yeah, when it, they come out of the gate. Um, although I, I mean, think there was a it was a little bit now. better with the new gate. Yeah, that this was is, the goal um, of, of the new gate. Yeah. But, uh, but so that can can play a part. Did you have any thoughts on Midnight Bourbon's little romp yesterday? <laughs> I believe it was. Oh, he just looked so delighted with himself. Like, but he did sort of have the look of like, you know, when Jitterbug gets loose from a, a handler, which doesn't happen so much anymore. When she was young, she used to get loose like quite frequently because she just was kind of a jerk. <laughs> so she would get loose and she would be so overjoyed at her newfound opportunity that she wouldn't have really come up with like, what am I going to do after that? So 
Uh-huh. She would just kind of run. And the problem with her is, like, you, you couldn't really entice her with grain. You couldn't really sort of coax her. And she wouldn't really have a plan. She'd just run around the farm. She'd run through the barn. She'd run out of the barn. She'd stir up all the other horses in the place. And she was just delighted with the chaos. Like, just look at me. This is great. I am causing all this nonsense. There's like a little, a couple little flashes, I, I feel like, in his facial expression of like, so I hadn't come up with what else to do after this, but this is kind of cool because like, look how upset everyone is. <laughs> I'm just sort of taking a tour around the yard. This is this is kind of nice. Like, I, I'm only surprised that he didn't like roll in the straw, but he was he was too excited to roll in the straw. But that that was sort yeah. of like the next thing you could imagine happening if he had gotten a moment well, to himself to do that. What I was kind of wondering, his first pass, his tail was up, and I'm I'm wondering, I was wondering, A, whether that was bedding or whether that was food, and B, I hope somebody went through it because I think he dropped some surprises <laughs> during his first pass because as he came out of the straw, his tail was up, and I don't know whether that was a surprise or whether that was an Arabian because some of these thoroughbreds, <laughs> they start channeling their Arabian ancestors and their tails <laughs> turn Arabian when they run. <laughs> yeah. But there were a lot of mixed reviews on Twitter. Um, some people, yeah. you know, kind of appreciated that the guy that let him go was doing a really tough job. And mm-hmm. I think he'd gotten his right forehoof wrapped up in the in the rope and I think the guy that was mm-hmm. leading him didn't know what to do um and then did the probably worst thing he can is let go um but then there were a couple people that were really critical of used as a platform of criticizing racing as a whole mm. I love yeah. the I love the one that was bathing and then finally was like okay I'm done with this crap and grabbed <laughs> Midnight Bourbon holding on to the horse she was bathing. That was such quick thinking on her part. And and you could see her kind of take a minute of like, is he going to stand still if I reach for him? Yes, he is. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it because otherwise it's just going to go on forever. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I did hear that the um, it sounded like he got his foot over the shank as he went up. Mm-hmm. And they tell you in that situation, you do let go because if you keep okay. pulling – um, you worry about them. You're the one gonna, thing you okay. pull when they go up. You worry about them going back, over backwards, which would over, be bad. Yeah, um, that's but true. But certainly when they okay. get a leg wrapped in, you don't want to pull because you don't want them to pull away you from you. And then you're better off letting go rather than injuring the horse. Of course, you don't want to let go in the middle of morning training when you've got horses all over the place. But if you hold on. Right outside the barn. <laughs> Yeah, you're almost certainly going to hurt them if you hold on. So he actually did what they tell you to do in that situation, even though okay. it resulted in some chaos. I I was mistaken. I was um, looking at it from a totally layperson's point of view. <laughs> oh no, that. I mean, so although you know sometimes you do have to let so. go, are you going to get dragged? Yeah. So. And- and that's never great. Um, you know, they they tell you if the horse is kind of getting away from you faster than you can keep up, you're, you're not going to help anything because you are going to get drunk. But certainly when they mm-hmm. go up, part of the problem is, like, if you don't give them as much slack as you can, then pulling down ends up um, pulling the halter, including the halter right behind their mm-hmm. ears. 
And that's a trigger right. for some horses of like something is, is touching my head. This is not good. I have a prey animal. I got to get away from that. And so like if you kind of cause more pressure in that situation, it can very, very quickly turn into a total, total panic where they are more likely to get hurt. So that's why with rearing in particular, they tell you like, you know, don't be a hero here because you're probably just going to make it worse. Yeah. And he apparently, Midnight Bourbon's no worse for wear. He he actually had a good workout today. <laughs> yes. Uh, and is, is still in, he's impressing people because he's one of the next favorites, as I yes. understand it. So, yeah, he's um, peaking at the right. Yeah, time. I gotta. Yeah, um, and I'll probably re- if there's a Justify or an American Pharaoh, that's who I'll probably end up rooting for because I just love those two horses. <laughs> and, Absolutely. Yeah. Um. Uh. So we'll have to see. I just want to see a. I, I want to see a repeat, kind of like um, Omaha. Mm-hmm. Gallant Fox and then Omaha were, you know, father and son triple crown winners. Right. Yeah. Although I've been really for Justify, but American Pharaoh could yeah. pull. I, I don't know if he has anybody in this year actually, but but his first polls have been very very impressive on the track. So it wouldn't surprise me if mm-hmm. we get that at some point. Yeah. So, of course, I'm being greedy because I've seen multiple triple crowns <laughs> now because I've, you know, I was born in 64, so I've seen five. Oh, wow. Now. Yeah. You I watched really Secretariat. Yeah. And um, that was, I was around horses and ponies with my great-grandfather but he was also into racing. And so we watched Secretariat and we watched Ruffian. We were watching the match race. Mm. And unfortunately, the next morning he had to explain um, that thing because that's really sad. But he explained it very well of, you know, sometimes when they, when horses break a leg, they can fix it, and sometimes they just can't, and horses have to have four legs. Right. So, but, uh, yeah, and then Affirmed and Seattle Slough, and so I've been very lucky. Absolutely. I worked with a girl who had never seen, had never seen one because she was born in 79. Mm. So... It was, it's very interesting, but I like, uh, that's my favorite time of year is Triple Crown. I wonder if we're going to be back to normal Triple Crown this year with the races in Um, the correct order. Yes, Um, they are, (laughs) they are scheduled to be run at their normal times in their normal order. So that's what we're all planning for. Now, have the tracks, are they, is it on a case-by-case basis, or have tracks um, resumed limited capacity? Are they still, you know, no spectators, or? It depends on where you are. It's it's more a state-by-state thing. Um, I think that Kentucky, New York, and um, California all got authorization fairly recently to open back up to 
a limited um, capacity mm-hmm. for the spectators. Uh, they had been most states had found a way to allow direct participants in, so owners could come and either just watch their race where they had their horse in, or maybe just come on the day that they had a horse in, but they couldn't just sort of come, you know, just to hang out. Um, and they've been pretty limited in that regard, but had been able to keep going for the most part. Um, it mm-hmm. sounds like up in Canada, they're having to, Woodbine is, is having to put the brakes again on resuming thoroughbred racing up there because their um, government in Ontario has sort of taken them back a step or two as far as the, the national lockdown and, and racing is not getting the exceptions for that to even be allowed to continue at all at this point. Um, they're still kind of trying to work with the government on that, I think, just to be able to get horses running, let alone to get people there. Um, and I think that there was maybe one other state, I believe it was New Mexico, um, where they were sort of similarly having problems where, like, based on sort of the language of the state orders on what was and wasn't okay, they weren't able to open up and resume because they couldn't have the um, gaming that was attached to the racetrack going, and they couldn't afford to go without the gaming. So they were sort of ah. stuck not being able to have racing. Uh, I think, I, I don't know if they have resumed yet or not. I think that they were able to for a little bit, and then they had to stop again. Um, I think okay. that they're still stopped right now, but I'm not 100% sure on that because it's been maybe a week since I heard about what their situation was there. So, um, But other than that, they've had some level of participation happening um, since probably about the summer, I would say, last year. Everybody kind of opened back up to do something, and now they're gradually opening back up to fans. I think Derby, they're assuming they're going to have, I want to say it's 40% of their normal um, sales for spectators. So it's going to be different, but it's going to be a lot closer to normal than it was last year. Right, because um, that was the interesting with horse racing, because they could, they kind of had to, um, because horses, Somebody has to feed them. Somebody has to walk them and exercise them. So, um, although they could have, I guess, gone to farms and been laid up, but being able to continue racing, whereas all other sports came to a halt. Right. Or even just continue working. Um, You know, that was kind of Mm -hmm. the question at the beginning of the pandemic is like, well, you have to have people here to feed them and they don't have much turnout space at most racetracks. So they have to get out of the stalls and exercise. But then of course that led to a little more frustration as we got a little bit farther into the pandemic of like, well, they're allowing people to come in and exercise them. What's the difference, you know, to have them run in the afternoon. Although of course you have a different Mm -hmm. sort of additional set of employees who have to come in the afternoon, even without fans. Um, in terms of, like, racing officials and um, jockeys' valets and all that kind of stuff. So um, I think that was why that took a little bit longer to resume. But, but yeah, there were certainly questions about, like, so we're closing everything, but we can't, we can't not care for animals. And that was a question in Kentucky for um, a couple weeks about boarding facilities. Like, we were sort of initially told, as long as there's somebody there to feed your horse, you were not to go there. Um, unless you're directly mm-hmm. caring for your horse. So there was a day, um, you know, that all of us who board our horses 
out with mine, like came and said goodbye to our horses right before the, the closure was supposed to begin. And we were like, I don't know when I'm going to see you again. Cause I don't know when it's going to be okay to come out for something other than direct hands-on care, because we do have a staff to mm-hmm. do that here. Um, but then that they sort of rolled that back a little bit fairly quickly. But, but that was sort of a question for everybody is how do you balance making sure they're cared for with not doing something that seems like an unnecessary risk, but, you know, per the state health people. Right. Well, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be back to normal soon. I got my first vaccine April 1st. My second is a week from Thursday. Oh, very good. I got my second um, one about a month ago. Okay. Now, did you have, uh, did you have any, I guess I want to say side effects? Because different Mm, people have experienced different levels of uh, fatigue or or even almost flu-like symptoms after the second right. dose. Yeah, the, the first one I got kind of like groggy. Like it, when I take Benadryl, I get real sleepy, and it felt like I'd taken about a half a dose of Benadryl. Like I'm awake, mm-hmm. I can sort of like – kind of function but critical thinking is a little sort of fuzzy and so I just kind of stayed on the couch for the day and like I was I was fine after that and the second one I had a little bit of that um in the hours right after the shot and I thought well great that's all it's going to be this is fine and then right before I went to bed I started getting the chills and the the, uh, joint aches and that kind of stuff and I was kind of flu-like for the day afterwards but then you know another day after that and I was fine so it was you know, it wasn't fun, but it was like, this is still well worth it. I would still rather do this than, than get COVID. So right, it was exactly. not fantastic. Um, I think it, anyone who still has to get their second shot, I've been, I've been telling people, like, just based on my personal experience, it was really great that I got my second one on a Saturday. And so I already had the next day where I could just sort of take off and not really do anything if I didn't feel Mm -hmm. like it and that ended up being really great because I would not have felt like doing anything productive. So if you kind of plan around being dumpy for a day or two, you'll be okay. My first one was a Thursday and I, I had the same thing. I was sitting there, I was at work all day, but I felt like if I had put my head down, I would have gone to sleep. Mm -hmm. And it was really, and I kept telling people, I don't know why I'm so tired. Um, yeah. The second one, I'm SOL because it's going to be on a Thursday at 9 a.m. at work because my oh, employer no. is large enough that they were able to arrange to have a nurse come with vaccines to vaccinate anyone who wanted one. Mm. Um, so I'm going to be at on a Thursday at work. <laughs> 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 But I, if I feel bad, I'll take off on Friday. So, and I think they're yeah, kind you, of they're kind of factoring that in. Well, and you might make it okay to the end of the day because I, I had a friend who had a similar experience, and she told me, you know, it was kind of strange. It took a good twelve hours before I felt anything really, so I thought I was okay, and that, and that was exactly what my experience was too. It doesn't mean that that's everyone's experience because, as mm-hmm. we know, everyone's reacting very differently to these, but. 
I, I was surprised at the delay. I, I felt so tired so quickly after the first one that I figured I'd know, you know, within a couple hours how I was going to feel. But turns out if I had been working that day, I probably could have gotten through the rest of my day before I was really going to feel bad. But you just, you don't know until you go through it. Right. Right. So, well, we'll see. I'll see how it goes. <laughs> Best of luck and, to you, Emma. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, like I said, I, I think they're – our office manager tried to get them to come on Friday and mm. they weren't able to do that. Um, but she sent out an email that says, you know, we'll play it by ear. If you're not feeling well Friday, it's okay. Mm, that's good. So, um, so there's no, you know, the, there's no problem if, if I do have a, a day where I just don't feel well. Yeah, but and I kind of am. I, I'm kind of glad because I won't be sick on Saturday. Yeah, that's true. So, and if I want to have a cocktail, I'll feel up to it. Because usually, <laughs> when I watch Kentucky Derby, Preakness, and Belmont, I have a few cocktails. The only other time I, that's the only time during the year that I drink. <laughs> but yeah, because <laughs> I'm not a big drinker. So. It's a, it's part of the experience, right. or so I'm told. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I don't like mint juleps, so I have to make my own. Yeah, I, I I'm not a drinker either, but I smelled a mint julep, and I thought like, uh, yeah, I couldn't. You couldn't convince me to drink that. I <laughs> I don't really care what's in it. I can tell from the smell. I'm not going to like that. <laughs> so. Um, I, yeah, I tend to like flavored vodka and like diet seven up and flavored vodka is really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's kind of my go-to. Well, there you go. You're ready then fruit then juices for your derby party. Good. Yep. <laughs> so, it's a derby party of one. But that's okay. Sometimes that's the best way to do it. All right. Well, it is almost 11 year time. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to, um, blog talk gives us two hours and then an indeterminate period. Oh. So, um, it's better, <laughs> it's better for us to end on a high note. Absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us tonight and taking the time to talk to us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's great to finally and talk I, to you in person. <laughs> well, sort of. Yeah, it is. You know. And um, sort of, yeah, on the phone, voice to voice. Yes. Uh, one of these days I'll show up in Georgetown, Kentucky, to see Jitterbug and be ready for the restraining order. <laughs> she would love that the, the lady that sends her candy corn she's not going to have any problem with that at all <laughs> oh i'll bring i will bring candy corn <laughs> oh well then you'll you'll be so, your favorite person in the entire world so. and and blueberry may get a bag of round peppermints oh he would love because as i understand the it he likes he that's it I, a lot of racehorses are like that though I, I've heard that, yeah, that, that that's the treat they're used to, and that's 
you know, sort of what they're expecting. I've been a little surprised that, like, I've tried to feed him other things and he'll sniff at them as if he's like, oh, that smells kind of good. But then he just sort of can't take the next step to, like, maybe I could try actually putting it in my mouth. And, like, I've tried carrots. I've cut apples. Uh, I tried just the whole apple and then I tried cutting it because I thought, well, maybe he'll smell the juice. And No interest. Horse cookies, which are basically just, like, compressed pieces of grain. No interest. Um, and finally, so I brought him candy canes thinking, well, you like peppermints, right? So this is great. He's like, no, that's not, that's not it. And like, it's the same thing in a different shape. And he's like, I don't know why you're trying to offer me this like small, sharp piece of plastic. Like, what's wrong with you? I can't eat that. All right. I guess your sister's getting that too. (laughs) He, he is the child who has to have his sandwiches cut crossways. (laughs) If you cut them up and down, he cannot eat them. Mm-hmm. You must always yep. cut them crossways. It, it has occurred to me, like, God help me if I have to, like, put any kind of medicated anything in his grain. Like, he is not going to be one who will tolerate that sort of thing. Like, Jitter will sometimes get naproxen tablets when she's having trouble with her, her front feet. And you just throw – you don't even have to crush them up. You just throw them in the grain, and she eats the grain so fast because she doesn't hardly chew anything. She has no idea they're in there, and she just inhales everything. So she's always been very easy. But if I ever have to feed him anything, it's going to be a challenge. Oh, yeah, and you can't exactly hide a pill and a piece of peppermint. No, I don't. I don't think so. That what they'll have you do sometimes is like dissolve them and put them in like a. Um, like an oral syringe, not a syringe with a needle on it, but, you know, just like mm-hmm. a plastic syringe and squirt it in their mouth if you really have to. But, like, of course they hate that. So you always hope you can yeah. trick the horse into eating the thing. And I just I have a feeling he's not one I'm going to be able to trick. So let's just hope he never needs that. <laughs> no, I, I will hope that he never needs that or that, that somewhere out there is a pill pocket for a horse <laughs> that works the way cheese does with a dog. Uh, it's about time for them to invent something like that. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know any uh, culinary whizzes? Oh, well. That would be. Yeah. Check out the culinary the... scene in Lexington. <laughs> the, uh, there you go. I, this is how I'm going to make a million dollars. I just know it. Yeah. Exactly. You and Joe, mm-hmm. and y'all can cut me in for a little tiny bit because I yeah, was the totally. inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you again, Natalie, so much for joining us. Um, and I'm going to be following you, and hopefully we will talk to you again very soon. I know racing time becomes very busy, uh, but... Uh, Hopefully, we'll be able to talk to you again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been really fun. Thank you. Have a great night. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye. Wow, that was... Every one of these, it blows me away, Lisa, just how informative. And I always learn something new. It's It's really awesome. Yeah, Natalie is great, and she's a great investigative reporter. Uh, I am going to post links 
um, probably over the weekend to uh, her byline at Pollock Report, Jitterbug's byline at Chronicle of the Horse, and some of these other articles. I'll I'll post her Eclipse articles. She Mm -hmm. is a phenomenal writer. I mean, absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. Joe's a very great a great writer as well. Uh, her husband Joe Neville, who's talked with us a few times and and who's you know one of our favorites. And mm-hmm. yes, yeah, she came. I I learned about her when I inquired to try and track down a horse that my great grandfather had many right. years ago. Who um, who was there when I was a kid, and Alva was a sweet mare um, who got to live a, the better part of her life in a pasture with a bunch of ponies around her, and she was kind of like the mama to the ponies, and she had no demands. You know, no no humans pushing her or pulling her. She just got to do, and she did like humans because whenever we were around in the pasture at the barn, she would come up and kind of hang out with us. Mm-hmm. So she was a very a very sweet, wonderful mare. Mm. So. All right, well, let's go ahead and put a bow on it before Blog Talk cuts us off. Right on. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us tomorrow, April 21st, 2021 at 8.30 p.m., For a special Facebook Live and YouTube event, Derek Chauvin Trial Roundtable. We'll post links on our Facebook page and our YouTube channel, and we hope you'll join us. Then join us on Tuesday, April 27, 2021 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 7, State of New York versus Sheila Davalu and State of Connecticut versus Sheila Davalu. On November 8, 2002, Annalisa Raimondo was found dead in her apartment in Stamford, Connecticut. While Davalu, who was a romantic rival, was a suspect in the murder, there was little to no evidence tying her to the crime. In March 2003, Davalu stabbed her husband twice during a sex game, then delayed seeking medical attention for him. When she finally relented and drove him to the hospital, Her third attempt on his life resulted in her arrest. We'll talk about the two cases, the charges against Davalu, and the trials that resulted in her conviction of attempted murder and murder in two different states. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.